Well, growing up, we are oftentimes asked a question or, or a form of the question, who do you want to be when you get older? And we oftentimes, at least as young kids, we respond with something maybe like, well, I want to be a police officer, an astronaut, a professional athlete, um, something that usually is tied to what you do. And I've always noticed that it's uh, typically people of either prominence, influence, maybe people who make a lot of money. Sometimes you might think a doctor or, or a lawyer, but it's often oftentimes very much connected. That question of who do you want to be is connected to what do you want to do. Now, if you were to ask uh, today's maybe next generation, what do you want to be when you grow up? You might hear a little bit different answers. You might hear something along the lines of, well, I want to be a YouTube star or a social media influencer, which is just crazy to think about. Maybe even 10, 12 years ago, that being an answer just is not something that might have come to our mind. But that's just the reality of the world that we live in. In fact, uh, there's people who make their entire living by running Twitter accounts. So show of hands, how many of you are on Twitter? How many of you guys are on Twitter, okay? Um, so, <laughs> uh, but you know, so it's one of those things that, that that is what people do. So one of my favorite Twitter accounts is called Thoughts of Dog, has almost 4 million Twitter followers, have their own website, they sell apparel. And so just think of it from this name, that someone's job is to come up with content like this. I want to share a few with you this morning. So here's the first one, Thoughts of Dog. So it's just a person trying to think, what is my dog thinking throughout the day? I drank all the water in my bowl earlier but just now it returned to the same bowl and it was full of water again. The bowl is haunted. That was a pretty good one. There's a couple more, two more. The human and the human's friend uh, are all dressed up to go out and once again, my friend and I don't seem to be invited. The good news is I jumped on them both so pieces of me will be tagging along whether they like it or not. Here's the last one. It says, I hear a noise. I think it's the garage door. It's the garage door. The human is home and my feet, they are a tippy-tapping. Somebody's life is this. That this what somebody is doing with their life is creating Twitter in the thoughts of a dog. So I would ask you the question, who do you want to be? What might you say? Would you say, I want to be rich. I want to be attractive. I want to be young again. Maybe there's a little bit more moralistic or more centered answers. I want to be known as a, a kind person, a generous person, a, a friendly person. But I'm going to pose this morning that, that perhaps we're asking the wrong question when we ask that. Instead of asking, who do you want to be? Rather, we should be asking this question instead. It's who are you becoming? Because whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, realize it or not, we are all becoming somebody in life. You know, one of the things we say around here is that everybody is being discipled. Someone or something is forming, is shaping your thoughts, your beliefs, your action. All of us are becoming someone, and that's our question for today. Who are you becoming? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. So just a couple quick things. As Catelyn said, uh, man, it is so good to be one church, one family, one location. Can we just give a round of applause for over six years? So many of you gave 
your blood, sweat, tears, your time, your talents, your finances to uh, have such a fruitful ministry there in Urbana. And we look forward to what God has in store for us. Next week, we are going to be kicking back, uh, picking back up our series in 1 Corinthians True North. Uh, just a quick word to say, if you want to get ahead, you can start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you do so, you're going to open up those pages and you're going to see kind of the content for next week. And I just want to say, it is a warning that we will be addressing uh, that head on. So if normally your students come with you into service, which is an option for you, just kind of be forewarned uh, that the topics of next week are going to kind of be a little bit more PG-13. But with that, it actually might be a great opportunity for you to have those conversations around sexuality and whatnot. And what does the Bible have to say about those? But we are in Joshua chapter 5, wrapping up this series that we are the church. And here's the thing, is Joshua has kind of gone through kind of this this big trying moment. So they are out of Egypt. They've been out of Egypt for 40 years. God parted the Red Sea, Passover came, and then for 40 years, they followed God around in the wilderness, in the desert. And by day, they received quail and manna sustenance every single day, no more, no less, except for the day before the Sabbath, they got a double portion. But by night, they followed around a a pillar of fire. By day, it was a pillar of cloud. And then finally, they crossed through the Jordan using this narrative of Joshua to say, here are the people of God and they are in a new place. They have a new leader and yet God is still moving through them in a different way. They have finished building a 12 stone altar to kind of commemorize and to memorialize what God did to lead them across the Jordan River on dry land and then here they are. They are starting to get ready to enter into the promised land. And now what? What's gonna happen next? Where do they go? What does forward look like? Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It begins this. It says, When all of the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast, heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So just real quick, here we have these new enemies who are immediately fearful of this group of people following God, not because of who they were. In fact, the Israelites were probably a little worn down. They probably weren't as strong as they once were, but because of who their God is, they began to be fearful. And so then what does God call them to do? These people who know that there is a living and active, all-powerful God and being on their side. What does he call them to do? They're in the new land, the land of opportunity before them. They're getting ready to go to the promised land. And what does God say? Verse 2 says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. Keyword here, again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraliath. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on their way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. 
For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. We call this the promised land. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised in that way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were and camped as they healed. So God says to Joshua, all right, Josh, here's the thing. New place, new region. We're going to go back to the old way of doing things. And you got to think, some of these guys were like, wait, what? I've heard about the rumors. I've heard about the way we used to do things. Now we're going to what? So they were probably a little on edge trying to think, why, why are we going back to the old way of doing something? Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, just Google it, YouTube it. Have fun. But what it originally was is why circumcision is because it was a sign. It was a sacrament. It was symbolic of an outward decision that reflected an inward change. That circumcision oftentimes meant a a gesture to show that God had control of your heart, to circumcise your heart. And so you did it out of obedience. But it begs the question, wait, why going back to something old? They have a new place. They have a new leader. They have new enemies. They have new homes. Why the old ways? And after 40 years of wandering post-Egypt, why go back to what they've always done before? It begs the question, right? But here's the thing. Is that leaving Egypt, it wasn't so much about getting rid of the old ways, per se. It was about the change of heart, the obedience that God always wanted. We can put it this way. It was never about where they lived. It was always about who they were becoming. Their time in Egypt wasn't so much that Egypt was a bad place or that Egypt was a terrible place to live or that they couldn't honor God with their actions, their money, their decisions. It had nothing to do with the physical place that they lived. Rather, who they were becoming was against who God was. In some ways, the where, the how, the what changes, but the who should always stay the same. George Bernard Shaw, he's a a famous uh, poet. He puts it this way. He says, people are always blaming their circumstances for who they are. Warren Buffett said that uh, much of what you become in life depends on who you choose to admire and who you choose to copy. You see, the problem with Egypt was not the land called Egypt. The problem with Egypt wasn't even Pharaoh. It was who the Israelites chose to mimic who they chose to copy, who they chose to worship. And as time went on, they began to get drawn away from the Lord their God. That circumcision of their hearts began to go back to where it was prior. And so God said, I need to take you out of Egypt because I need your hearts more than anything else. I need who you are to worship and to know who I am. And so for 40 years, God was essentially reminding them This is who I am. This is what I ask. This is what I require. And so he goes back to circumcision, not because the old ways of doing things are necessarily better. He goes back to circumcision to say, are we going to remember these last 40 years of wandering? Have they actually changed your heart? Have you become reliant on me the way that I desire everybody living in the kingdom and the family of God to rely on me? They got in this habit of blaming their culture. 
They got in their habit of, well, you see, you see, it's just Egypt, it's just Pharaoh, it's all the Egyptians. They're the one who's drawn us away. And God's answer is like, no, 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 bro. You have forgotten who I am, and you have forgotten who you are called to be. You see, I think sometimes the Israelites, they suffer from what I call a Uncle Rico syndrome. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite. It's probably like, I don't know, 20-ish years old now. It was an indie film that kind of got like critical acclaim. It has a cult following. It's one of the weirdest, goofiest movies you could ever watch. But there's this character in the movie called Uncle Rico. And Uncle Rico is the guy who's just never left high school. In fact, the movie is kind of set in like the late 90s. And he clearly dresses like he's still in the 70s. He, draw, he drives like a family van around by himself. And you constantly hear from Uncle Rico go, well, back in the day, back in the day, if coach would have put me in, we would have won state. Back in the day, I could throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Back in the day, I bet you I could throw a pigskin over the mountains. And he's constantly blaming on the decisions, the circumstances of what were that led him to not reach his full potential. And the people of God, the Israelites, and sometimes us, we have that same Uncle Rico syndrome. Well, if it wasn't for back then, If somebody didn't make that choice, I would have reached my full potential. And God is looking at the Israelite people saying, you are in a new place. I have brought you to a new land. The what, the where, the how may or may not be changing, but the who is what matters most. It doesn't matter your your region. It doesn't matter who your leader is. It doesn't matter what season you find yourself. Who is what matters God continues his direction, verse 9, picking back up Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. He says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That's God's way of saying, Hey, I brought you out of Egypt to get you to follow me. There was some disobedience, and so some of this was a punishment. Just know that that has been covered. So we're, we're starting fresh here. And so this place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. So the first time in 40 years, they've had anything but saltine crackers and some birds. They ate vegetables. That sucks, okay? Let's just call it for what it is. But they ate it with unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce from the land of Cana. So not only does God say to Joshua, Joshua, let's go back to this old way called circumcision. I also want you to continue to remember this Passover celebration, Now, you might not be Jewish or you might not know what that is, but the Passover uh, refers to the time in which God was rescuing his people out of the land of Egypt. On the final day after all the plagues, God said, there's one final plague. Because Pharaoh won't let my people go, because he won't let them follow me, I am going to bring them out myself. And here's what's going to happen is at dusk, my spirit is going to descend on this city and it is going to take the life of every firstborn from every household unless you place your faith 
in the pure, spotless lamb and take that lamb's blood and paint it on your doorpost, two on the sides, one on the top. And then as my spirit descends and weaves through the city, it will pass over your house, signifying not only that you believe, but that you belong to me. And so Passover comes, the spirit of, the God, spirit of God descends, and it all, it all happens, and then after that, Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here, I can't deal with this anymore, and the people go. And so God has constantly been reminding the people of Israel, and hopefully a reminder for us today, that the same God who put into motion the Passover is the same God who puts us into motion today. Well, think about this, they have a new region, but they have the same rituals, They have a new leader, but they are under the same law. They have a new goal, the promised land, but they have the same God. So God kind of begins to test them one more time, and we don't have enough time to read it. And so it said there, they they were camped at the the, the hill of Jericho, and what Jericho was, it was this big old city, and it was completely walled and had all these gates. They didn't really let people in and out. It was self-sufficient, and people heard the stories about how awesome Jericho was. I hear in Jericho, right, that, that, that corn just grows, and you can eat it straight up. It's amazing. I hear that kids never disobey their parents in Jericho, I hear about Jericho that, that when you, you, you eat something, you don't even have to cook it. It just kind of happens, and then it just, just magically does something in you. And I hear in Jericho, all the guys have six-packs. I hear in Jericho, no, oh, I'm making all this stuff, right? But the one thing that the whole kind of world at that point knew about Jericho, it was the pristine land that you wanted to live. That's why they built walls and gates, and they didn't want anybody in or out. And so God says to the Israelite people, okay, okay, we, we, we've come out of Egypt. We've, we've gone here 40 years. You guys get it? Okay, okay, you've circumcised great. We've celebrated Passover. You remember who's in charge. You remember who's calling the shots. You remember who has a will for your life. You, everybody good? Good, good, good. Okay, cool, cool. You see Jericho, they're like, oh, we see Jericho. That's where I want you to be. But there's lots of walls and gates. Don't worry about that. I have given it to you. And they're probably like, okay, this is sweet. So how are we going to get it? Are we going to go uh, get some sledgehammers and knock down the wall? Did you give us some heavy artillery? Are we going to shoot mortars over? I don't know. What are you going to do? And God says, cool, here's the plan. For six days, you're going you're gonna to camp outside the city, and you're going to march around the walls one time for six days. Okay, you know, maybe just getting a lay of the land, seeing what we're dealing with. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and you're going to get all your trumpets, you're gonna take the, and you're all going to shout and scream and blow the shofars, and then the walls are going to come crashing down. And then it'll be yours. You've got to think the people are like, God, we know you're amazing. We know what you're capable of, but even this sounds a little crazy to us. No offense, Lord, but this sounds a little wild. But something interesting happens because God has given Israel the mission first. Then he gives them the marching orders. See, first thing he says is, you see Jericho, that is the promised land. I have given it to you. They're like, awesome, sweet, we're in. And this is great. Now, here's the marching orders of how you are going to do it. He gives the path before the plan. He gives the destination before the details, the inspiration before the itinerary, the directive before the directions. Because God wants to say, do you believe me? 
not just believe in me. Because there's a big difference for the people of God. Lots of people believe in God. Their own enemies believed in God and they feared. But to believe him is a whole different act and level of faith. And the people of Israel just spent 40 years not just learning to believe in God, but to believe God. That every single day they woke up, that they believed that he would be consistent to deliver them the quail and the manna from heaven. So God is saying, here is a test now. You've circumcised your hearts. You have remembered what I did back in Egypt. You believe in me. But now will you believe me? Will you act? Will you be obedient? Will you be who I have called you to be? The whole point of the exodus, the quail, the man of the 40 years, is because Israel forgot to believe God, not believe in God. And so they had to relearn who they were in his kingdom. That he is a God of hope, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of restoration, a God who does all of those things and more. But he says, if you want to move forward in the promised land, who comes first? Who I am and who you are must come first. We can put it this way, is that in God's kingdom, forward starts with who God is and who we are becoming. It's not enough to live in the kingdom of God and just believe in God. Believe about God. To know facts about Jesus. You must believe him. You must believe in his ways. You must believe in his ordinances. You must believe in his law. You must believe in his way of life. And the Israelite people sometimes, I think, reflect and they serve as a mirror for you and I. And for many people in life and in faith today, we have a lot of people who believe in God. But the question is not do you believe in God, the where, the what, the how's about God. Do you believe the who? Do you believe in the who? That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave three days later to impart his spirit into you that if you confess that you're a sinner, you believe by grace, you are saved and you are given a new life, you become a new creation. Or do you just believe in God? So God says, if you're going to move forward in my kingdom, if you're going to move forward as my people, you need to remember who I am and who I have called you to be. So two questions for us this morning. Number one, I want to ask you this question specifically for you, for yourself, is who do you want to become? Whether you like it or not, realize it or not, admit it or not, you are asking yourself this question on a daily basis. Based on how you schedule your time, based on what you do with your money, based on how you raise your family, based on the relationships that you manage and curate, you are answering this question, whether you're thinking it or not, who do you want to become? And I bet Joshua kind of had a really difficult time trying to answer this question. What type of leader, he's got to think, do I want to become? God, do I believe in you? Absolutely I do. Do I believe in the old way of circumcision? Sure, let's go ahead and do that. The guys aren't going to like it, but sure, you know, you're, I can blame it on you. The Passover, absolutely. I've heard stories. We've, we've witnessed that. But you want me to do what? To take your people to where? 
It's a little crazy there. God, don't you understand how foolish that sounds? Don't you understand how crazy that seems? God, people might make fun of me. People might think I'm a little cuckoo. And so, so Joshua had a decision to make of who am I going to be? Am I going to be a leader who says, I believe not just in who God is, but I believe God? Am I going to look like a fool to the world so that I may be faithful to you? Or am I going to be faithful to what other people think and look like a fool to you? You see, everybody has an opinion of how you should live your life. I've learned this very much so over the last six years having kids. They very much have an opinion of what type of father you need to be, of what you need to do, of how much candy is appropriate. Like last night, okay, I'm showing my kids, I'm introducing them to the great saga that is Star Wars. We're going chronologically. We can have conversations about that, whatever. My daughter is obsessed with Jar Jar Binks because she's a weirdo just like Jar Jar Binks. And my son is like smashing a bag of Skittles and he gets up, he goes, I gotta go to the bathroom. And he goes to the bathroom and then he comes out and all of a sudden he's not sitting back on the couch and he's just kind of sitting there on like the side of the couch. And then all of a sudden I hear, plop, plop, plop. I was like, what was that? (laughs) And he was like, Skittles? I said, didn't you just have a bag of Skittles? And he was like, yeah, I wanted another bag. I said, but we said one bag. He's like, yeah, but I wanted two. But I said, we said, we said one bag. He said, yeah, but I wanted two. And I said, but we, I said one bag. And he said, but we had an extra bag. And I said, what does mom say? He goes, she's asleep. I said, okay, have your second bag of Skittles then. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> they have an opinion on everything. Your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors all have an opinion on the type of person you want to be. My mentor once said that opinions are like butts. Everyone has them and most of them stink. It's true. The question is, whose opinion are you going to listen to the most in your life? Are you going to be willing to be foolish to the rest of the world so that you may be faithful to God? Or are you going to say, God, that seems a little foolish. People might make fun of me. People might not like that. That goes against the waves of the culture. And so I'm going to be actually foolish to you so I can be faithful to what the rest of the world does. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. God has a desire. He has meaning. He has hope. And yet, oftentimes, it will look foolish to the rest of the world. What you do with your money, how you manage your job, your sex life, your view of sexuality, your marriage, your schedule, and on and on down the line, oftentimes following God, moving forward in his kingdom, means being willing to look a little foolish to the world around you so that you may be faithful to God. As disciples of Jesus, we must be okay with this. We must be comfortable looking foolish to the world around us because we resolve to say, I don't just believe in God, I believe God and who I want to become. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. says, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. God has made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
In the year 1960, there was a, an MIT professor by the name of Edward Lorenz, and he was trying to figure out a way to um, predict weather patterns and forecasting. And so one of the things that he did is he had this program, and every day he put in, I want to get this number right, the number was 0 0.506127. 0 0.506127 was the number he put in to kind of create this algorithm, these patterns. And then one day... Edward was in a hurry. He was kind of being, being super busy, so he, he ran in and just typed in the number 0 .506, and as he recounts, he says, rounding up to the nearest thousandth, I just assume wasn't going to make a big difference. He left, and he came back, and when he looked at his system, he realized that it had made monumental, massive changes in the weather conditions and patterns, and he said, Tens of thousands of, of a numerical value. He said, he said that's, that's really the same value of the puff of air some butterfly wings make. And hence the phrase, the butterfly effect was born. That that small amount, that small decision has the ability to impact weather thousands of miles away. And what is true of science is true of life and is true of faith. That who you are in God... And who God is to you is not just the big rocks, it's not just the big decisions, but it's the small ones, the interconnectedness of the minutia of life. Joshua didn't just say, I'll believe, I'll worship, I'll circumcise, I'll remember, but I'm not doing that marching thing, Lord. He said, I believe in the God of the wilderness. It's the same God of the Passover, who is the Lord of my life, and where you lead, I will follow. I'll march. So for some of you, you might feel like you've maybe missed or squandered your opportunity to follow God faithfully. And if that's you, what I just want to say to you is you haven't. You're here today. You have life in you. You have breath in your lungs. You have not missed the chance to make decisions, both big and small, that impact the kingdom of God, I want you to know that the love of Jesus is for you, that the grace of Jesus has plans for you, that no matter how much you have navigated, maybe your entire life feels like a wilderness, God is saying, but do you believe in me, and do you believe me that when I say I can still do amazing things with you and amazing things for you? Some of you could be here today saying, I feel like I'm kind of actually on the right track. Well, that's awesome. And I would say, have the discipline to stay there. Stay humble. Remember who is leading and guiding you. Some of you, probably majority of us, it feels more like an on-again, off-again relationship with God. Some weeks are better than others. Some months that we have it all together. Sometimes I make the right choice. Sometimes I don't. And let me just say that on-again is better than off altogether that God has forward for you. God has next for you. But you need to not just believe in him, you need to believe him. I'm convinced that one of the only regrets that we will have at the end of our lives will be that we didn't seek God more or that we didn't seek God sooner. So who do you want to become? Here's a second question. I'll close with this question. It's for us collectively. Is who might God want us to be? Who might God want us to become as the people of God, as the people of First Christian Church? Jesus said in John chapter 13, by this, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. 
In Matthew 28, Jesus gave a very clear call. Go and make disciples. Teach them, help them obey, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I am with you. We know that we want to be people of the word. We want to be people of prayer. We know the big rocks, but what do the small parts look like? What are the attributes of who God is calling us to be as a church? If you've spent any time with... um, in, in some of our cohort training or any of our mid-sized group uh, stuff with Samuel, you've probably heard the phrase, God wants us to be fat and hungry. And you're probably like, man, that's why you give such good donuts on Sunday mornings. That makes sense. The word fat is an acronym. means faithful, available, teachable. And then hungry means hungry. We believe that if you want to be faithful to God, you will be available with your schedule, with your time, your gifts, We believe that we should all be teachable, that we are all a work in progress. We all need things to grow, to shepherd, to steward. We all need, we need accountability in our lives. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I learned something massive this week. We need to be teachable, but that last word, hungry, we gotta want it. We gotta wanna take those steps. We gotta wanna take those steps of faith. We gotta want to move forward. We need to be fat and hungry for Jesus. Who might God want us to become? I will tell you uh, early on, uh, I think I was technically, as I was serving as interim um, past, lead pastor here, uh, I got this Connect card and I've had it with me ever since. And I want to read this because I think it, it speaks to who I believe God is calling me to be to lead this church and where we're headed. So I just want to read this. It says, I've loved my time at FCC, but this will be my last Sunday. Eric talks too much about Jesus. And I leave feeling more convicted than encouraged. He only seems to want to talk about what the Bible says and not what's going on in my life. Love, mom. No, I'm just kidding. It was not my mom. (laughs) And I keep that card with me because I took that as the biggest source of encouragement for me is that if the thing I'm going to be known for is saying this is who Jesus has called you to be, This is what the Bible says. This is what this church should be founded on. I will take that connection card every single Sunday and never lose an ounce of sleep. So let me close with some encouragement this morning. Jesus is for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And that is a message we want the entire world to know. We want the entire Champaign-Urbana community to not just hear that, but to see that in us. By how we live, how we treat one another, and it starts with our love. But we need to be people that say, I don't just believe in God, I believe God. He desires a full life. He also said, be prepared that when the world hates you because of me, pick up your cross daily and come after me. And the only way we become those types of people, the only way we become fat and hungry is by saying, God, I just don't believe in you, but I believe you, who you are, what you've done, and who you are calling us to be. We're gonna continue this morning as we prepare for communion. 
Uh, if you're uh, with us here, it's your first Sunday here in Champagne, man, we love having you. I know some of you, you came in and I know some of our regular Champagne people, you're in like very different seats because somebody was in your seat. Um, there's gray chairs. Those were our chairs from Urbana. We did that intentionally because we wanted to show that we are in fact one family and that you guys are loved and welcome here. Communion is a time for us to remember that we don't just believe in God, we believe God. That when Jesus said, you have new life in me, you have a new opportunity, you have a new spirit that I took on sin so that you may not be held accountable, that's what communion represents. That the little cracker represents the body of Christ broken for you. The juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you. If you are with us today and you are a follower, you're a disciple of Jesus, we invite you to partake in communion. The timer will come on the screen for three minutes and we invite you to, to take the elements by yourself and to spend some time in prayer, maybe asking, God, where in my life am I just believing in you and not believing you? If you are with us this morning and you are just exploring faith, one of the, my favorite things about this church is on, on a regular basis, I have conversations after services about people who are just exploring God and Christianity and that they feel at least at a minimum welcomed here, that they can belong here in the family of God. I just wanna say during this time, while the family of God partakes in communion, I encourage you to just wrestle with that question. Who do you want to become? Who do you want to be? as life goes on. Let me pray and I will leave you to worship through communion. God, we thank you, we love you, we praise you for who you were in the book of Genesis, who you were in the book of Exodus, who you were in the book of Joshua, who you were in the book of Malachi, who you were through the gospels, the book of Acts, and who you will be in the book of Revelation for us. I thank you, Jesus, for your spirit. I thank you that sin knows no home in those who are the children of God. I thank you for your purpose and I pray for forward. I pray for future, for every individual who calls First Christian Church home and I pray for forward and future for us as a congregation. Lead us and we will follow. Tell us to do crazy things and we will do crazy things. Help us to not just believe in you, but to believe you. We offer this time, it's an act of worship. In your name that we pray.